The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. My grandpa uh, passed away a couple years ago. His name uh, was Glenn Johnson. He's my mother's dad and uh, lives down here in Florida. Uh, here's a picture of him and my grandmother from the 40s. This is a picture of uh, my grandfather. Anymore. There it is. Here's a picture of my uh, grandfather and uh, my grandmother. This is in the 40s, and um, this is right before they actually left for the mission field. They were missionaries to Japan, and this was post-World War II Japan. As Japan was rebuilding, there was a call for missionaries to take the gospel to Japan, and my grandparents were among those who answered that call, and they, uh, they went off to the mission field. And uh, one thing about grandparents, you probably have this maybe with your grandparents, or maybe you are a grandparent, and, and you share these things, uh, but grandparents, I love hearing, remembering the stories that they would tell me, and some of the stories from my grandfather, and we actually called my grandfather Jichan, that was from the Japanese word for grandfather, so we, all, we called him Jichan. And the stories that he would share, he would, some of the stories I remember were from in his high school and I think college days, he used to be a lifeguard. And so he'd talk about being a lifeguard and about, he was kind of an athletic guy and how he, there's a couple times where someone was stranded uh, way off in, in the water and he swam all the way out to save them. And so one of the things that Ji-chan would do for us as grandkids, especially uh, myself and my sister, is he would teach us to swim when we were little. And I can still remember being in the pool and him, he, was, he would hold up our bodies like this and he would teach us the different strokes and how to swim. And those memories those, and those stories came flooding back to me this week because we took our two-year-old daughter, Scarlett, to get swimming lessons. And uh, we, I was remembering him and wishing that he was here to do swimming lessons because uh, taking your child for swimming lessons, is, uh, it's an interesting experience. We took our, our little two-year-old, her name is Scarlett, we, we dropped her off, and there's this swim instructor, came highly recommended to us, and uh, we're watching him. First, he's teaching her to kick, and she's just kind of you know, going through the, the pool, he's teaching her how to kick, and, and then, that, that's just phase one, just teaching her legs how to, how to kick like this, and then phase two, it jumps pretty dramatically at this point. He steps about 10 feet away from the pool, from the edge of the pool, and um, he's in the water. Don't get me wrong, he's in the water. He steps about 10 feet away, he's facing the wall, and he says, okay, so you know how to kick. Okay, try it, and pushes her off in the water. And if we're watching, we see her head just slowly going under the water, okay? And we're seeing this kind of flailing, kicking happening, and she's getting to the side of the pool, and, and the time it takes from her to get from this swim instructor to the pool is about a week and a half, okay? <laughs> and then we see her head's completely submerged. We see her little hand come up out of the water like this, reach for the side, and then she pops herself up, okay? That's phase one. This happens for a while. Then he backs up a little farther, okay? And then he pushes her off, but this time she's not facing the wall. She has to turn herself around under the water and then start kicking furiously for the wall, which now takes about a month, okay? And we see her little hands come out on the edge, and then she pulls herself up. That's phase two. Phase three 
is to simulate. Now, this is all for her protection. If she were to fall into a pool, this is helping her learn to swim to the side. So phase three is to simulate what would happen if she was to fall in the pool. So he takes her, her back is to the wall, throws her into the air. She drops underwater a couple feet, turns around, swims to the surface, and gets to the edge. Okay, Then there's phase four. He straps a stick of dynamite to her back. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. That's not it. There's phase four, which is now I have to get in the pool, and I have to do these exercises with Scarlett. I have to toss her in the air, push her with her back, you know, all these things. I have to do that. Now, just so you understand, when she finally came up at the wall, okay, this was not a happy experience. There is crying, there is screaming, there's snot, okay, there was some vomiting at one point, and Scarlett wasn't happy either, okay? (laughs) She was not very happy. This is this process of swimming lessons, and I'm going through this, I mean, I absolutely recommend this if you want 30 minutes of torture, okay? And there's this dynamic between Scarlett and, and Rebecca and I, and she's looking at us like, usually you take me to fun activities. This was not so much a very fun activity, but of course, and there's no way we can describe to her why we're doing this. This is for her safety. We want her to be comfortable with the water and be able to be near a pool. And so, of course, this is for her good, but there's no explaining this to her. And there's this dynamic that happens between a parent and a child, and it repeats in different forms throughout the, the longevity of that relationship, where there's this trust and this faith that has to be built between a parent and a child. One day when she's out of our home, maybe she's off at college, maybe she's living on her own, there will be principles and truths and advice that will still be ringing in her ear, and it's the same type of faith where she'll now not have as much accountability, and she'll be like, okay, am I... Am I really going to do what they said? Do they really know what they're talking about? There's this long-term faith relationship that happens between a parent and a child. There's this swim lesson is played over and over and over in, in different formats. Now, we're in this study called Grandpa's Campfire Stories. It's the life of Abraham. Grandpa Abraham is telling us stories from his past. And this story that we're going to look at, this episode of his life that we're going to look at this morning is just such a fantastic story. It's so relatable. It's so real. It shows you how real and honest the the scripture is. Because what's happening to Abraham is he's going through a swim lesson. He's going through a season of life where he's like, God, really? What? Why are you just torturing me? God, could you just do something? Can you show up? Can you just show me something? And we'll watch how tender God is with him. He doesn't chastise him for struggling to have faith. And in the end, he shows him, he shows him something to strengthen his faith. It's really like a sign. He gives him a sign to strengthen his faith. And it's such a powerful sign that it still reverberates and can actually strengthen our faith. You may be here this morning and say, actually, I'm going through a swim lesson with God. Right now, I am struggling, and I'm looking at God saying, God, why are you doing? This is just senseless, what you're doing in my life. This is painful. I mean, when are you going to show up? When is the season going to be over? When is the pain and the frustration going to stop? When are good things going to happen? You may be in that difficult season. Maybe this passage can strengthen your faith as well. I believe it can. You may be here, and you may be saying, look, I I actually don't really have a relationship with God at all. 
I'm actually here because I'm going through, I'm just searching and I didn't know where else to turn. You might be here and you might say, I'm here because you know, my, uh, my neighbor or my coworker has been pestering me to come and so I just finally relented to shut them up and now I'm here. You may be here because you came with your parents or you came with your spouse or you came to see what was going on because your kids are in the student ministry or in the kids ministry and you came just to, to check it out. And you may be here saying, look, I don't really have a relationship with God at all. And first of all, I'd say, man, if that's you, I hope you feel welcome and I hope you know how glad we are that you're here. But this could be a very important passage for you too. Because in this passage, you may be saying, the reason you may be saying, man, I'm not really sure where I'm at with God. I'm not really sure what kind of relationship I, I, I want with God. It might be because you're looking at the circumstances in your life and saying, I'm not sure I can entrust my life to him. I mean, look what he's allowed in my life now or before. This is a powerful story from Grandpa Abraham, and I want to jump into it with you. Would you open with me? We're looking in Genesis chapter 15. You can find it in a Bible if you have a Bible app. You can turn there. It's also going to be up here on the screens as well. It's in the listening guide, also in your bulletin. Let's look at Genesis uh, chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 1. This is what it says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now remember, Abram is uh, originally Abraham's name. His name actually gets changed to Abraham, but that hasn't happened yet in his life. So he still goes by the name Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Okay, here's this conversation with God. It's very relatable. God is saying, uh, Abraham, no matter what happens to you in your life, he's like, you, you don't need to fear. I am going to be your shield. That's a really rich metaphor. In other words, he's saying, I will protect you. Nothing can happen to you. That It has to go through me first. You can trust that I am orchestrating the events of your life. I am your shield. I am protecting you. You can trust me. This is what God is saying. And here's what Abraham's response is. God, I've got to be honest with you. I'm kind of struggling to trust you. I'm struggling right now. You're saying that you're going to protect me. You're saying that you're going to watch over, over me. But man, I am struggling to, to, to trust you. And he says, and he references the fact that he and his wife don't have any children. Well, here's the backstory. When we first started the story with Abraham, we came across he and his, and his wife were living in this city by the name of Ur. And that was in, it's right near the Persian Gulf. That's in like modern day Iraq, Kuwait area. And God said, okay, I want you to leave everything, your country, your people, your tribe. I want you to leave everything, and I want you to travel to a brand new land, and here's why. I'm going to make your descendants, your children, your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, all of your descendants, they will be so numerous, they'll be so successful, they'll be so powerful, they will become like their own mighty nation, and I have a land set aside that they're going to live in. So I want you to leave the city, I'm going to give you a land, you're going to have powerful descendants. You're like the fountainhead, the father of a mighty nation. He says, not only that, but I have a plan for that nation. I'm going to use that nation to impact the entire world, to actually impact history. That's pretty shocking if you're Abraham to hear that. 
he picks up with, in faith, he picks up his, his wife Sarah and they head to this new land. Now, there's some catches to this. First of all, when he arrives in this new land, which is right near, he settles near the Dead Sea, so this is modern-day Israel that he settles in. It's not like it's vacant land. It's not like he's just showing up and, well, just, you know, lay claim to this land. No, there's kingdoms. There's powerful kingdoms there. And God's saying, I'm going to give you this land. He's like, man, there's some massive obstacles in the way. But that's not, only, that's not the biggest problem. The other problem is he says, God, you're going to give me a lot of descendants. We have no children. Sarah's not been able to have, they, together, they've not been able to have any children. Sarah's, and, and both Abraham and Sarah have been pulling out their hair. God, we're advanced in age, and we don't have any children. You've promised powerful descendants, but we don't have any kids. We've not been able to, which is agonizing in and of itself, let alone the promise that God gave to them. So you can imagine, it's pretty relatable. Maybe you felt like this before. God says, Abraham, you can trust me. I am a shield protecting you and protecting your life. I'm your protector. I'm like your shepherd tending to you. And Abraham says, God, I've got to be honest. I'm struggling. Where are all these descendants you've talked about? If I, my, the only heir that I have is a guy that works for me. I'm going to have to pass everything off to this guy. Look at how God responds. Verse 4. And behold... The word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heavens and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And look at this. This is so important. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That last verse is one of the most important verses in the entire Bible. It's actually repeated and quoted several times. So here's the situation. Abraham's saying, God, you made this promise, but we have no children. God says here, uh, first of all, that guy, Eleazar, the guy who works for you, he's not going to be your heir. I've promised you, you will have a descendant. He will, you will pass everything to him. He says, but I want you to do this. He says, walk outside. Look at, look at the sky. He says, you know how many stars are in that sky? Could you even count them? That's what your descendants are going to be like. You, you couldn't count them. Innumerable. That's who your descendants are going to be like. And what did Abraham say? God, you're going to have to give me more than that. No, that's not what he said. It says he, he just chose to believe God. And he had faith. He chose to have faith. And it says, and God said, that's righteousness. That's it. It's like God saying, yes, okay, thank you. That's what I'm looking for. Okay, I want you to think about this word. It's a very churchy Bible word, faith. It's a word we use uh, around, we kind of toss around. I want to just dig into this word for just a second. This word faith is so important. Other parts in the Bible says it is impossible to please God if you don't have faith. Faith is the foundation. I, I want to dig into this word for a second. Um, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I, we took uh, some vacation and I, uh, I had to put a an away message on various mediums of communication, which with every passing year and every new app becomes increasingly difficult. Back in the olden days, okay, you could like send a letter to somebody, okay, or like a telegram, you know, hello, stop, how are you, BRB, stop, okay, you could send someone a telegram. But now, I mean, think about all the ways someone can get in touch with you. I mean, they can call you, okay, on an actual phone that you carry with you at all times. 
Okay, they can send you a letter, they can send you an email, but how many in here, raise your hand if you have more than one email address. Go ahead, I want to see hands. Okay, raise your hand. Okay, pretty much everybody, all right? More than one email address, they can send it to you. If you have social media, they can Facebook you, they can direct message you, they could just put a little comment and hope that you see it, okay? There's all these ways that they could, you could do FaceTime, you could do Skype. There's all these different ways that someone can contact you. All right, I want you to think about faith. Faith is, it's like the communication medium for a relationship with God. The strength of your faith is how clear that the signal is between you and God. Let me give you an example. Let's just use this as a test case. Um, Let's just use prayer, for example. If in your mind prayer is like a chore, it's something where we're all supposed to pray a little, so I, I better do some prayers, then, then my prayers, if that's my mentality, my prayers will be like, God, man, help me today, you know, bless grandma, and uh, man, just make it a, a good day, amen. But if I think of prayer, if I, my faith is rich, strong, then here's what I'm imagining. I'm realizing, I mean, it's more than what I'm imagining, it's what I believe. I'm realizing the person with whom I have an audience. I'm realizing, wait a minute, when I pray, I'm having a one-on-one session with the most powerful being ever to exist. I mean, he created power. Okay, he holds the entire universe, galaxies and solar systems. He's running them. He's holding my molecules together. He owns everything that is. There is no prayer request I could invent that is too powerful, complex, difficult for him. I couldn't come up with one. The, the craziest prayer request I could throw up, he's like, ah, that's easy. That's who I have an audience with. I mean, can you imagine how much more urgent I will be in my prayer if I have faith just realizing who God is and who I'm speaking with? See, it's the difference between my prayers being like a telegram, you know, help me, stop. Or FaceTime, where it's like I'm with God. It's like I'm eyeball to eyeball with God. It's like he, we're right there, and I'm sensing how he's changing my heart in my prayers. I mean, faith is like that signal back and forth with God is absolutely vital. But man, why does God, why does he do that with faith? Why doesn't he just make it easy? Doesn't just make it easy. I mean, maybe you might be here and be like, look, I, I, I kind of want to believe in God, but there's just some things that don't make sense. I mean, there's just some logical problems that I have with God. I want you to think about this. God is going to require faith. But why? Why can't he make it logical and rational? Why can't he just make it work in my mind? Think about this. If you're seeking after God, by definition, the, the almighty of the universe, the most immense being in the universe... But you're saying that he has to fit perfectly into your brain and your logic? Those things don't work together. I mean, think about this. If logically I have to have God fit into my mind and my framework of rationale, if he has to fit into my framework of of logic, then I'm saying God is containable by my logic. He's smaller than my logic. But by definition, God is bigger than my logic. So if logically I find a God that fits in my logic, I no longer have God. So logically speaking, if God has to fit into my logic for him to be God, that's illogical. Now, does anyone have any idea what I just said? Because I lost myself somewhere. Send me an email. I don't know what I said. Okay. Track with me here. 
God knows he's bigger than our minds could possibly contain. He's not going to make us fit inside our logic. We can't fit him inside our logic. We should be searching for a being who's bigger than we can understand. Okay, but did he just send like a little miracle? You know, maybe just do something in the sky or just, you know show up a little, or maybe I can just see him with my senses, or see what he's doing, or maybe hear a voice, or just some, why doesn't he just, why does he have to be so invisible and so quiet? Why can't he just show up in my senses? I mean, think of what we're saying. Where I'm saying God would have to show up, and he'd have to do something to get my attention. I'm saying, God, you'd have to, for me to believe in you, you'd have to submit to my senses. I'm saying, God, if you want, if you're real, then you would submit to my senses. But if he's real, he doesn't submit to anybody. See, here's what he knows. If he begins a relationship where he submits to my senses, then he's setting me up to have a relationship that he'll continually submit to me. And that's not the type of relationship God could have with anyone. If he starts with, all right, God, I'll believe with you when you show up, and boom, he shows up, okay, I'll believe in you. Then the first time he does something that I don't like or I don't understand, I'm like, okay, no, I'm done. No, it has to be a faith relationship. It has to be a relationship where I submit to him and even submit whether I sense him or not. I say, God, no, you exist. Yeah, but man, I suppose I could just feel a connection. Maybe you, at some point you said, man, I really felt God strongly. I went that one Sunday or that one Christmas Eve or that Easter morning or that student camp I went to or that conference or that retreat, I felt him strongly, but now I just I don't feel him as much anymore. Why can't you just show up emotionally, kind of impact me, stir up my emotions? Here's what he knows. If he has to stir up my emotions to get me to believe in him, then here's what he knows. There's going to be many times down the road where what he's calling me to do is not something I feel like doing, and that's not the way he's going to set up a relationship with me. See, a relationship with God has to be a faith relationship. That has to be the foundation. Because that's part of us submitting all that we are, our mind, our senses, our emotions, to God. See, here's the reality of God. God exists. Whether I want to acknowledge it with my mind, my emotions, or my senses. If one day I wake up and I just don't feel like the country of Albania exists, doesn't matter, it's still there. God begins this faith relationship. That's why through the scripture, when he sees faith, he's like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. And Abraham, in this moment, he, sees, he hears God saying to him, this is what I've promised you, and he just chooses to say, yes, I believe. And God's like, that's righteousness right there. Let's see what Abraham says next. Let's jump back in. Check out verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now watch, this is where it gets weird. Watch this, verse 10. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, And laid each over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. 
Uh, this is one of those passages you read in your devotions and you're like, this is why I can't understand this crazy stuff in the Bible, okay? Here's what happens. God says, okay, we got the children thing. You're trusting about the kids. Trust me, I'm going to give you the land I promised. And Abraham says, God, I'm not even close. Look at these kingdoms. How am I supposed to know I'm going to possess this land for, for our descendants, for my descendants? How in the world am I supposed to believe you? And God says, okay, I want you to bring me these animals. And he lists out, he says, a, a, a cow, a goat, a ram, a pigeon, a turtle dove. Bring me these animals. Okay. Now what Abraham does next, notice he doesn't just bring him the animals. He cuts them in half. Now is he like having a temper tantrum? I'll show you some animals. Let me cut these in half, throw them apart. Is that what he's doing? No, that's not what he's doing. Here's what's happening. God is entering into, he's doing a ritual that would have been well known to Abraham. This is, in that time in history, this ritual was well known. It was a type of contract. So when God asked for the animals, Abraham knew what to do. I'm supposed to cut them in half. He cut all, he cut the cow in half. He cut the goat in half. He cut the ram in half. That's disgusting. He laid the pieces down, it's kind of like facing each other, so to speak, and there's this like row, this aisle that goes in between. Now, can you imagine just how just bloody that was? This is a very grisly, vivid demonstration, but this was a contract that they would do. Now, this type of contract would, some, would usually go like this. Kings, when they would conquer like a new city, they would make a contract with its inhabitants, the king's new subjects, and he would make a grisly scene like this. He'd cut like animals and stuff in half, and he would make the inhabitants of this new city, his new subjects, walk through the pieces, walk down that little aisle. And here's what the king is saying and what the subjects are agreeing to. The king is saying, if you are disloyal to me, this is what I will do to you. And the inhabitants, by walking through the pieces, that's their way of signing their names to this contract. You can imagine that would be pretty etched in their minds. So God says, bring me these animals. And Abraham says, okay, and brings them. He knows what's going on. He cuts them in half. He lays them down. And you can imagine Abraham's expecting, okay, God's going to make me walk through these pieces. Maybe he's thinking, all right, God's saying, if you, if you question me again, Abraham, this is what you're gonna, this is what I'm going to do to you, walk through these pieces. Maybe that's running through his mind. Sun is starting to go down. He falls asleep, and it says this incredible darkness, this, this treacherous, oppressive darkness comes over him. And in the darkness, I'm just going to summarize the next couple verses. What God says is, he says, Abraham, he says, I'm going to give you the land. He says, in fact, this is, I'm going to even tell you how it's going to go down. He says, your descendants are going to have to flee and they're going to have to go stay in a foreign land. He says, they're going to be there for about 400 years, but while they're there, the people that live in that land will oppress them. He says, then I will judge those oppressors. He says, and then they'll leave and they'll leave with treasures. And you know, that's exactly what ends up happening. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who gets renamed Israel, and his 12 sons who become the tribes of Israel, they have to flee because of a famine and they go live in Egypt. And over the course of 400 years, they become so populous, this becomes a nation of Israel, it becomes so populous that the Egyptians are threatened and they enslave them. Does this sound familiar at all? Enslave them, makes them build all their monuments and stuff, and they cry out to God, and God sends a guy by the name of Moses. He goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, and 
Pharaoh won't, so God brings judgment on Pharaoh, sends the plagues. Finally, Pharaoh says, all right, get out of here. And he sends them off, and, and as they leave, it says actually the people of Egypt give them their treasures as they leave. And then God, they, they go to Mount Sinai, and it says they, that's where Moses gets the Ten Commandments on the tablets, and then they wander through the wilderness. And now look what happens next. I want to jump down to verse 17. It says this. It says, let's wrap up this, this story. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed through these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So did Abraham have to pass through the pieces? No. He's having this dream, and in this dream, what actually passes through the pieces? Well, it's fire and, and a cloud, smoke. And what Abraham couldn't know is that's interesting because that's exactly what it says on Mount Sinai about 400 years later when Moses is getting the Ten Commandments. It says, smoke and fire descends on the mountain. And what Abraham couldn't know is a couple hundred years later, 400 years later, when they're wandering through the wilderness, there's two pillars that are guiding them through their wilderness as they're wandering. You remember what they were? A pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So he's seeing this, in this dream, he's seeing a smoke and fire going through. It's an incredible symbol and almost a prophecy saying, I will lead your people through peril and I will, I will protect them. But it's more than just a symbol. Remember, it's a contract. Who is passing through the pieces? It's God himself. The presence of God is passing through the pieces. It's not the subjects that are passing between the bloody pieces. It's the king that passes through the bloody pieces. He's passing through these animals. Why did he pick these animals? I mean, what's with, why does, why does it have to be a cow and a ram and a goat and a pigeon and a turtle dove? You remember, you may know the sacrificial system, the, the animal sacrifices that the people of Israel will bring to the priest, the, the priest to pay for their sins. These are the animals, except for a lamb. It's the only one missing. These are the animals. So here's what God is saying. His presence is going through the pieces. He's saying, I promise you I will do what I say, but if I don't, this is what I will allow to happen to me. I will be ripped apart. I will be violently torn apart and bloodied. I will become like these animals. I will become like the sacrificial animals. See, what's so powerful about this this episode in Abraham's life is this isn't the end of the story. The book of Mark, it talks about a day when a great and terrible darkness descended on the land. An oppressive, treacherous darkness in the middle of the day comes down on the land. And interestingly, it's while lambs are being uh, offered up as a Passover sacrifice. And on that day, Jesus Christ is nailed to a tree. He's stretched out and violently killed, bloodied. And at that moment, the Son of God calls out to God the Father. He says, why have you forsaken me? And literally what you see is the the Godhead, the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. You see God the Father and the Son ripped apart. So wait a minute, are you saying 
God didn't keep up his end of the contract? That's not like God. He's faithful. No, see, that's what makes the story of Jesus so incredible. God kept up his end of the contract. But we didn't. God, the one worth, worthy of our worship, he's always, always, always faithful. He brought his people into the land and they stopped worshiping them then. And so who is it that's not faithful? It's us. Who is it that should be ripped apart? Who is it that should be punished? Who is it that doesn't keep up our end of the contract? It's us, his subjects, who owe him our worship, and yet we worship other idols and just focus on ourselves and and have all kinds of disobedience and sin against him. But because he loves us, he takes the punishment that we deserve. He was stretched out and bloodied and ripped in half. And Jesus died on the cross. But on the third day, he rose again from the dead. See, this is the sign that's given to Abraham. This is the sign that says, here is why you can have your faith in me. Because he's saying, I'm this kind of God. I will pass through the pieces. It's put like this in Romans 8, 31 and 32. Can you look up here on the screens? It's going to be up here. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Look at this next verse. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. I want you to read this underlined part with me. Can you read it out loud with me? How will he not also? Read that again out loud with me. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying if God gave his son... If God went through the pieces for us, even though we deserved it, if he was ripped apart, if he was bloodied, he was that grisly scene on the cross, how will he not also? And whatever your circumstance is, how will he not also do all things to bring it together for good? See, here's if Grandpa Abraham were here, if he was sitting here with us, here's what he'd say. Grandpa Abraham were here, he'd say this, look to the cross And say, how will he not also? Look to the cross and say, how, if he would do that, God, how will you not also in my circumstance bring all together for good? Let me ask you this question. Abraham is struggling with his, with his promises of God that feels like, God, where are you? You promised me children and we're barren. Can I ask you, Where is your barrenness this morning? And can in the midst of that you say, how will he not also? See, when he's promising, he's not promising to give you whatever you're wanting, whatever you're praying for. Thank goodness he doesn't do that. He does far better. He gives us what he knows as a good father is what we need. He He gives us what he knows is for our good this morning. You might be in your swimming lesson. And you're coming up from the water each time and saying, God, what are you doing? And he's saying, just look at the cross and say, how will he not also? If you would do that, how will you not also? Whatever it takes in my life to bring about for good. Maybe this morning you've got relational barrenness. Maybe you're saying, God, I'm single and when am I going to find a spouse? I'm trying to do the right thing. How long will I have to wait? When are you going to bring that person into my life? Maybe you're saying, God, maybe you really identify with Abraham and Sarah saying, God, we long so much for children, but God, why are you holding this back? 
Maybe you're saying, God, when is this, this relationship going to heal? When is my marriage going to get back on track? God, when is my relationship with my child going to be fixed? God, when is this relationship with this, this friend or this parent, when are you going to heal that? God, I'm waiting for you. I feel like I'm drowning here. Maybe this morning it's a medical barrenness. You're like, God, I wake up with pain every single day. God, I've got things happening apparently in my body that terrify me. God, I'm, I'm afraid of what's coming next. God, how, when are you going to save me from my barrenness? When are you going to work things together for my good? And he's saying, look at the cross and ask, how will he not also? Maybe this morning you're looking at your circumstances and you're saying, God, this couldn't be more dire. When are you going to come and rescue me? When, are, when am I going to find a job? Or when am I going to do something with my life that has purpose? Or when are you going to fix this? I, I can barely pay my bills, bills. I can barely put food on the table. God, when are you going to show up? When are you going to save me from the loneliness, the despair, the depression that I'm in? And he says, look to the cross. Know that I will do that and ask this question. How will he not also in whatever your circumstance is this morning? There's a man by the name of uh, Ira Sankey, and he lived in the, uh, towards the end of the 1800s. Here's a picture of him. And uh, he's an interesting guy. He actually served in the Civil War, fought for the Union, and he became a, a worship leader, actually, after the war. And he was a, became a famous singer because he, he would go around leading worship with D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was like an evangelist at that time. He was like the Billy Graham of the day, like the most famous international evangelist. And he was his worship leader, Ira Sankey. And in the late 1800s, one Christmas Eve, he was traveling home and he's on board this ship on the way home on Christmas Eve. And you can imagine that it was kind of an interesting dynamic on that boat. Everyone's kind of wishing they were home, but they're all on this boat together for Christmas Eve. And they're all, many of them are on the deck just looking out into the night sky and thinking about what's happening at, at their home with the warmth and the holidays. And, and uh, someone recognizes Ira Sankey and he says, uh, Pastor Sankey, would you sing, sing a Christmas song for us? Would you sing for us? Kind of help us get into the holiday spirit. So he asked him to sing, and, and uh, Pastor Sankey said, okay, and, and he was thinking about what song he'd sing, and he decided to sing a song. It's actually not super Christmassy, but it's about God, our protector. It's about God, our shepherd. And he began to sing this song about how God guards us and watches over us, how he's a great shepherd in our life. And, and when he was done, a, a man came up after and said, um, Pastor Sankey, I, I, thank you. And people are saying thank you in pleasantries, but one guy very intense said, Thank you for singing that song. I got a question for you. Did you fight in the war? He said, yeah, actually I did. He says, you fought for the Union. He said, yeah, I fought for the Union. The man said, I I fought for the Confederacy. And he said, "Um, were you ever like a a night watchman and and have to walk on the perimeter of your camp keeping, keeping an eye on things at night? And he said, yeah, actually I did do that. He said, I thought so. When you sang, I recognized who you were. He said, one night, I was uh, approaching uh, a Union camp. He says, I was in the shadows. No one could see me. And I saw a man walking. He was a Union watchman, and he walked right in the moonlight. And I raised my musket, and I said, this is an easy shot. That man is a dead man. He said, I aimed my musket, and the man started singing. And the beauty of his voice just kind of caught me, so I stopped, I stopped for a second, and, and I was listening, and I was like, all right, I'll let him finish the song first. And he says, and as soon as I heard you sing, I recognized you were that man, and that's the song that you sang. And this is what he said. At the end of the song, I could not raise my musket again. It was impossible for me to take aim, though you stood still in the bright moonlight, a perfect target. 
Then I thought of the Lord. I looked at you and thought, the Lord who was able to save that man from certain death must surely be great and mighty. My arm dropped to my side. I cannot tell you all the things I thought at that time. My heart was smitten, but I didn't know what to do. Just now when you were about to sing and stood quietly as if praying, I recognized you. He says, I've wandered far and wide since that occasion. I have never found that shepherd. Please help me find a cure for my sick soul. And he gave his life to Christ on the deck of that boat that night. And you may be saying, wow, man, that's a crazy once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-a-generation type of story where God rose up and protected that man. And God doesn't do that kind of stuff all the time. Yes, he does. The same intentionality he had that night is the same intentionality and purpose he has in your life every day. Every minute, every second. That's your shepherd. That's your shield guarding your life. Weary Christian, are you tempted to look up to the sky and say, God, where are you? First of all, notice from the passage that God doesn't chastise you for doing that. He's waiting to comfort you. And he's saying, just look to the cross. I've given you a sign. And say, how will he not also take that phrase, beat it into your head, write it down, post it on a sticky note, put it in your mirror, read it every morning, remind yourself, how will he not also, if he's done the cross, will he not rise up in my life and protect me? But you may be here today and say, I, don't, I, I want that shield. I don't have that relationship with that shepherd. I, I'm kind of on my own here. Can I help you know something? Religion is not a shield. The tradition your parents pass to you, the religious activities, that alone is not a shield. It's not praying, it's not coming to church that's a shield, it's not doing good things, good deeds, religious activities. It's God himself and he wants a relationship with you. He wants you to walk in faith following him through your life. Some of you are walking, you're saying, I I don't have a relationship with God, I'm just trying to do my own thing, protect myself. Do you know your efforts are not a good enough shield? Look around at the testimony of the lives around you. We need God Almighty with intentionality shielding our life. And he wants to begin that relationship of faith with you. And he says, you can begin it today. He says, put your faith in what I did on the cross that day. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. On that cross, he became the sacrifice, the payment for the sins, the payment that we deserved. We deserve to walk through that grisly aisle, but Jesus did instead. Do you want to put your faith in Jesus today? If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you all just bow your heads and close your eyes? I just want to lead you in a simple prayer this morning where you're saying, yes, God, I want to begin this journey of faith. You're saying, yes, Jesus, I believe you paid the price for my sins to save me for eternity. If that's you, here's what I want to ask you to do. Just simply pray these words in your heart to God. Make my words your words. Just say, God, thank you for being patient in my faithlessness. Thank you for paying the price for me. Thank you for paying the penalty that I should have paid through Jesus Christ. I put my faith in you today, and I want to begin a faith journey with you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. 
for more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.